Chapter one hundred and one of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The two friends. At the very time Monsieur de Baisemeaux was showing Aramis the prisoners in the Bastille, a carriage drew up at Madame de Belliere's door, and at that still early hour, a young woman alighted, her head muffled in a silk hood. When the servants announced Madame Vanel. To Madame de Belliere, the latter was engaged, or rather was absorbed in reading a letter which she hurriedly concealed. She had hardly finished her morning toilet, her maid being still in the next room. At the name, at the footsteps of Marguerite Vanel, Madame de Belliere ran to meet her. She fancied she could detect in her friend's eyes a brightness which was neither that of health nor of pleasure. Marguerite embraced her, pressed her hands, and hardly allowed her time to speak. Dearest! she said have you forgotten me have you quite given yourself up to the pleasures of the court i have not even seen the marriage fetes what are you doing with yourself then i am getting ready to leave for belliere for belliere yes you are becoming rustic in your taste then i delight to see you so disposed but you are pale no i am perfectly well so much the better. I was becoming uneasy about you. You do not know what I have been told. People say so many things. Yes, but this is very singular. How well you know how to excite curiosity, Marguerite. Well, I was afraid of vexing you. Never. You have yourself always admired me for my evenness of temper. Well, then, it is said that— no i shall never be able to tell you do not let us talk about it then said madame de belliere who detected the ill-nature that was concealed by all these prefaces yet felt the most anxious curiosity on the subject well then my dear marquise it is said that for some time past you no longer continue to regret monsieur de belliere as you used to it is an ill-natured report marguerite I do regret and shall always regret my husband, but it is now two years since he died. I am only twenty-eight years old, and my grief at his loss ought not always to control every action and thought of my life. You, Marguerite, who are the model of a wife, would not believe me if I were to say so. Why not? Your heart is so soft and yielding, she said spitefully. Yours is so, too, Marguerite, and yet I did not perceive that you allowed yourself to be overcome by grief when your heart was wounded. These words were in direct allusion to Marguerite's rupture with the superintendent, and were also a veiled but direct reproach made against her friend's heart. As if she only awaited this signal to discharge her shaft, Marguerite exclaimed, "'Well, Elise, it is said you are in love.' And she looked fixedly at Madame de Belliere, who blushed against her will. "'Women never escape slander,' replied the Marquise, after a moment's pause. "'No one slanders you, Elise.' "'What? People say that I am in love, and yet they do not slander me.' "'In the first place, if it be true, it is no slander, but simply a scandal-loving report. In the next place, for you did not allow me to finish what I was saying—' The public does not assert that you have abandoned yourself to this passion. It represents you, on the contrary, as a virtuous but loving woman, defending yourself with claws and teeth, shutting yourself up in your own house as in a fortress, in other respects as impenetrable as that of Danae, notwithstanding Danae's tower was made of brass. "'You are witty, Marguerite,' said Madame de Belliere angrily. "'You always flatter me, Elise. In short, however—' You are reported to be incorruptible and unapproachable. You cannot decide whether the world is calumniating you or not. But what is it you are musing about while I am speaking to you? I? Yes, you are blushing and do not answer me. I was trying, said the Marquise, raising her beautiful eyes, brightened with an indication of growing temper. I was trying to discover to what you could possibly have alluded— you who are so learned in mythological subjects in comparing me to Danae. "'You were trying to guess that,' said Marguerite, laughing. 
yes do you not remember that at the convent when we were solving our problems in arithmetic ah what i have to tell you is learned also but it is my turn do you not remember that if one of the terms were given we were to find out the other therefore do you guess now i cannot conjecture what you mean and yet nothing is more simple you pretend that i am in love do you not so it is said very well it is not said i suppose that i am in love with an abstraction there must surely be a name mentioned in this report certainly a name is mentioned very well it is not surprising then that i should try to guess this name since you do not tell it my dear marquise when i saw you blush i did not think you would have to spend much time in conjectures it was the word denay which you used that surprised me denay means a shower of gold does it not that is to say that the jupiter of denay changed himself into a shower of gold for her my lover then he whom you assign me i beg your pardon i am your friend and assign you no one that may be but those who are ill-disposed toward me do you wish to hear the name i have been waiting this half-hour for it well then you shall hear it do not be shocked he is a man high in power good said the marquise as she clenched her hands like a patient at the approach of the knife he is a very wealthy man continued marguerite the wealthiest it may be in a word it is the marquise closed her eyes for a moment it is the duke of buckingham <laughs> said marguerite bursting into laughter this perfidy had been calculated with extreme ability the name that was pronounced instead of the name which the marquise awaited had precisely the same effect upon her as the badly sharpened axes that had hacked without destroying messieurs de chalet and de two upon the scaffold she recovered herself however and said i was perfectly right in saying you were a witty woman for you are making the time pass away most agreeably this joke is a most amusing one for i have never seen the duke of buckingham never <laughs> said marguerite restraining her laughter i have never even left my own house since the duke has been at paris oh resumed madame Fanel, stretching out her foot toward a paper which was lying on the carpet near the window it is not necessary for people to see each other since they can write the marquise trembled for this paper was the envelope of the letter she was reading as her friend had entered and was sealed with the superintendent's arms as she leaned back on the sofa on which she was sitting madame de belliere covered the paper with the thick folds of her large silk dress and so concealed it come marguerite tell me is it to tell me all these foolish reports that you have come to see me so early in the day no i came to see you in the first place and to remind you of those habits of our earlier days so delightful to remember when we used to wander about together at vincennes and sitting beneath an oak or in some sylvan shade used to talk of those we loved and who loved us do you propose that we should go out together now my carriage is here and i have three hours at my disposal i am not dressed yet marguerite but if you wish that we should talk together we can without going to the woods of vincennes find in my own garden here beautiful trees shady groves a greensward covered with daisies and violets the perfume of which can be perceived from where we are sitting i regret your refusal my dear marquise for i wanted to pour out my whole heart into yours i repeat again marguerite my heart is yours just as much in this room or beneath the lime-trees in the garden here as it would be under the oaks in the wood yonder it is not the same thing for me in approaching vincennes marquise my ardent aspirations approach nearer to that object towards which they have for some days past been directed the marquise suddenly raised her head are you surprised then that i am still thinking of saint mande of saint mande exclaimed madame de belliere and the looks of both women met each other like two resistless swords you so proud 
said Marquise disdainfully. "'I so proud,' replied Madame Vanel. "'Such is my nature. I do not forgive neglect. I cannot endure infidelity. When I leave anyone who weeps at my abandonment, I feel induced still to love him. But when others forsake me and laugh at their infidelity, I love distractedly.' Madame de Belliere could not restrain an involuntary movement. "'She is jealous.' said marguerite to herself then continued the marquise you are quite enamoured of the duke of buckingham i mean of fouquet elise felt the illusion and her blood seemed to congeal in her heart and you wish to go to vincennes to saint mande even i hardly know what i wished you would have advised me perhaps in what respect you have often done so most certainly i should have done so in the present instance for i do not forgive as you do i am less loving perhaps when my heart has been once wounded it remains so always but monsieur fouquet has not wounded you said marguerite vanel with the most perfect simplicity you perfectly understand what i mean monsieur fouquet has not wounded me i do not know of either obligation or injury received at his hands but you have reason to complain of him you are my friend and i am afraid i should not advise you as you would like ah you are prejudging the case the sighs you spoke of just now are more than indications you overwhelm me said the young woman suddenly as if collecting her whole strength like a wrestler preparing for a last struggle you take only my evil dispositions and my weaknesses into calculation and do not speak of my pure and generous feelings. If at this moment I feel instinctively attracted towards the superintendent, if I even make an advance to him, which I confess is very probable, my motive for it is that Monsieur Fouquet's fate deeply affects me, and because he is, in my opinion, one of the most unfortunate men living. Ah, oh, said the Marquise, placing her hand upon her heart, something new, then, has occurred? do you not know it i am utterly ignorant of everything about him said madame de belliere with the poignant anguish that suspends thought and speech and even life itself in the first place then the king's favour is entirely withdrawn from monsieur fouquet and conferred on monsieur colbert so it is stated it is very clear since the discovery of the plot of belle-isle I was told that the discovery of the fortifications there had turned out to Monsieur Fouquet's honor. Marguerite began to laugh in so cruel a manner that Madame de Belliere could at that moment have delightedly plunged a dagger in her bosom. Dearest, continued Marguerite, there is no longer any question of Monsieur Fouquet's honor. His safety is concerned. Before three days were passed, the ruin of the superintendent will be complete. Stay, said the Marquise, in her turn smiling. That is going a little too fast. I said three days, because I wish to deceive myself with a hope, but probably the catastrophe will be complete within twenty-four hours. Why so? For the simplest of all reasons, that Monsieur Fouquet has no more money in matters of finance my dear marguerite some are without money to-day who to-morrow can procure millions that might be monsieur fouquet's case when he had two wealthy and clever friends who amassed money for him and wrung it from every possible or impossible source but those friends are dead money does not die marguerite it may be concealed but it can be looked for and sought and found you see things on the bright side, and so much the better for you. It is really very unfortunate that you are not the Egeria of Monsieur Fouquet. You might now show him the source whence he could obtain the millions which the king asked him for yesterday. Millions? said the Marquise in terror. Four, an even number. Infamous! murmured Madame de Belliere, tortured by her friend's merciless delight. Monsieur Fouquet, I should think, must certainly have four millions, she replied courageously. If he has those which the king requires today, 
said marguerite he will not perhaps possess those which the king will demand in a month or so the king will exact money from him again then no doubt and that is my reason for saying that the ruin of poor monsieur fouquet is inevitable pride will induce him to furnish the money and when he has no more he will fall it is true said the marquise trembling the plan is a bold one but tell me does monsieur colbert hate monsieur fouquet so very much i think he does not like him monsieur colbert is powerful he improves on close acquaintance he has gigantic ideas a strong will and discretion he will rise he will be superintendent it is probable such is the reason my dear marquise why i felt myself impressed in favor of that poor man who once loved and even adored me and why when i see him so unfortunate i forgive his infidelity which i have reason to believe he also forgets and why moreover i should not have been disinclined to afford him some consolation or some good advice he would have understood the step i had taken and would have thought kindly of me for it it is gratifying to be loved you know men value love more highly when they are no longer blinded by its influence the marquise bewildered and overcome by these cruel attacks which had been calculated with the greatest nicety and precision hardly knew what answer to return she even seemed to have lost all power of thought her perfidious friend's voice had assumed the most affectionate tone she spoke as a woman but concealed the instincts of a wolf well said madame de belliere who had a vague hope that marguerite would cease to overwhelm a vanquished enemy why do you not go and see monsieur fouquet decidedly marquise you have made me reflect no it would be unbecoming for me to make the first advance monsieur fouquet no doubt loves me but he is too proud i cannot expose myself to an affront besides i have my husband to consider you tell me nothing very well i shall consult monsieur colbert on the subject marguerite rose smilingly as though to take leave but the marquise had not the strength to imitate her marguerite advanced a few paces in order that she might continue to enjoy the humiliating grief in which her rival was plunged and then said suddenly you do not accompany me to the door then the marquise rose pale and almost lifeless without thinking of the envelope which had occupied her attention so greatly at the commencement of the conversation and which was revealed at the first step she took she then opened the door of her oratory and without even turning her head toward marguerite vanel entered it closing the door after her marguerite said or rather muttered a few words which madame de belliere did not even hear as soon however as the marquise had disappeared her envious enemy not being able to resist the desire to satisfy herself that her suspicions were well founded advanced stealthily towards it like a panther and seized the envelope ah she said gnashing her teeth it was indeed a letter from monsieur fouquet she was reading when i arrived and then darted out of the room during this interval the marquise having arrived behind the rampart as it were of her door felt that her strength was failing her for a moment she remained rigid pale and motionless as a statue and then like a statue shaken on its base by an earthquake tottered and fell inanimate on the carpet the noise of the fall resounded at the same moment as the rolling of marguerite's carriage leaving the hotel end of chapter one hundred and one recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter one hundred and two of the d'artagnan romances volume three part one by alexander dumas translated by william robson this librivox recording is in the public domain madame de belliere's plate the blow had been more the painful on account of its being unexpected it was some time before the marquise recovered herself but once recovered she began to reflect upon the events so heartlessly announced to her she therefore returned at the risk even of losing her life in the way to that train of ideas which her relentless friend had forced her to pursue treason then deep menaces concealed under the semblance of public interest such were colbert's manoeuvres a detestable delight at an approaching downfall untiring efforts to obtain this object 
means of seduction no less wicked than the crime itself. Such were the weapons Marguerite employed. The crooked atoms of Descartes triumphed. To the man without compassion was united a woman without heart. The Marquise perceived, with sorrow rather than indignation, that the king was an accomplice in the plot which betrayed the duplicity of Louis the Thirteenth in his advanced age, and the avarice of Mazarin at a period of life when he had not had the opportunity of gorging himself with French gold. The spirit of this courageous woman soon resumed its energy, no longer overwhelmed by indulgence in compassionate lamentations. The Marquise was not one to weep when action was necessary, nor to waste time in bewailing a misfortune as long as means still existed of relieving it. For some minutes she buried her face in her cold fingers, and then, raising her head, rang for her attendants with a steady hand and with a gesture betraying a fixed determination of purpose. Her resolution was taken. "'Is everything prepared for my departure?' she inquired of one of her female attendants who entered. "'Yes, madame, but it was not expected that your ladyship would leave for Belliere for the next few days.' "'All my jewels and articles of value, then, are packed up?' "'Yes, madame, but hitherto we have been in the habit of leaving them in Paris. Your ladyship does not generally take your jewels with you into the country.' "'But they are all in order, you say?' "'Yes, in your ladyship's own room.' "'The gold plate?' "'In the chest. And the silver plate?' "'In the great oak closet.' The Marquise remained silent for a few moments and then said calmly, "'Let my goldsmith be sent for.' Her attendants quitted the room to execute the order. The Marquise, however, had entered her own room and was inspecting her casket of jewels with the greatest attention. Never until now had she bestowed such close attention upon riches in which women take so much pride. Never until now had she looked at her jewels except for the purpose of making a selection, according to their settings or their colors. On this occasion, however, she admired the size of the rubies and the brilliancy of the diamonds. She grieved over every blemish and every defect. She thought the gold light and the stones wretched. The goldsmith, as he entered, found her thus occupied. "'Monsieur Fachot, she said, "'I believe you supplied me with my gold service.' "'I did, your ladyship.' "'I do not now remember the amount of the account.' of the new service madame or of that which monsieur de belliere presented to you on your marriage for i have furnished both first of all the new one the covers the goblets and the dishes with their covers the eau epergne the ice pails the dishes for the preserves and the tea and coffee urns cost your ladyship sixty thousand francs no more your ladyship thought the account very high yes yes i remember in fact that it was dear but it was the workmanship i suppose yes madame the designs the chasings all new patterns what proportion of the cost does the workmanship form do not hesitate to tell me a third of its value madame there is the other service the old one that which belonged to my husband yes madame there is less workmanship in that than in the other its intrinsic value does not exceed thirty thousand francs thirty thousand murmured the marquise but monsieur fachot there is also the service which belonged to my mother all that massive plate which i did not wish to part with on account of the associations connected with it ha madame that would indeed be an excellent resource for those who unlike your ladyship might not be in a position to keep their plate in chasing that they worked in solid metal but that service is no longer in fashion its weight is its only advantage that is all i care about how much does it weigh fifty thousand livres at the very least i do not allude to the enormous vases for the buffet which alone weigh five thousand livres or ten thousand the pair one hundred and thirty murmured the marquise you are quite sure of your figures monsieur fachot positive madame 
Besides, there is no difficulty in weighing them. The amount is entered in my books. Your ladyship is extremely methodical, I am aware. Let us now turn to another subject, said Madame de Belliere, and she opened one of her jewel boxes. I recognize these emeralds, said Monsieur Fachot, for it was I who had the setting of them. They are the most beautiful in the whole court. No, I am mistaken. Madame de Chatillon has the most beautiful set. She had them from Messieurs de Guise. But your set, madame, comes next. What are they worth? Mounted? No, supposing I wish to sell them. I know very well who would buy them, exclaimed Monsieur Fachot. That is the very thing I ask. They could be sold then. All your jewels could be sold, madame. It is well known that you possess the most beautiful jewels in Paris. You are not changeable in your tastes. When you make a purchase, it is of the very best. And what you purchase, you do not part with. What could these emeralds be sold for, then? A hundred and thirty thousand francs. The Marquis wrote down upon her tablets the amount which the jeweler mentioned. The ruby necklace, she said. Are they bala rubies, madame? Here they are. They are beautiful, magnificent. I did not know that your ladyship had these stones. What is their value? Two hundred thousand francs. The center one is alone worth a hundred thousand. I thought so, said the Marquise. As for the diamonds, I have them in numbers. Rings, necklaces, sprigs, earrings, clasps. Tell me their value, Monsieur Fichot. The jeweler took his magnifying glass and scales, weighed and inspected them, and silently made his calculations. These stones, he said, must have cost your ladyship an income of forty thousand francs. You value them at eight hundred thousand francs? Nearly so. It is about what I imagined. But the settings are not included. No, madame, but if I were called upon to sell or to buy, I should be satisfied with the gold of the settings alone. As my profit upon the transaction, I should make a good twenty-five thousand francs. An agreeable sum. Very much so, madame. Will you accept that profit, then, on condition of converting the jewels into money? But you do not intend to sell your diamonds, I suppose, madame? exclaimed the bewildered jeweler. Silence, Monsieur Fachot. Do not disturb yourself about that. Give me an answer simply. You are an honorable man, with whom my family has dealt for thirty years. You knew my father and mother, whom your own father and mother served. I address you as a friend. Will you accept the gold of the settings in return for a sum of ready money to be placed in my hands? Eight hundred thousand francs! It is enormous. I know it. Impossible to find. Not so. But reflect, madame, upon the effect which will be produced at the sale of your jewels. No one need know of it. You can get sets of false jewels made for me, similar to the real. Do not answer a word. I insist upon it. Sell them separately. Sell the stones only. In that way it is easy. Monsieur is looking out for some sets of jewels as well as a single stones for madame's toilets. There will be a competition for them. I can easily dispose of six hundred thousand francs worth to monsieur. I am certain yours are the most beautiful. When can you do so? In less than three days' time. Very well. The remainder you will dispose of among private individuals. For the present, make me out a contract of sale, payment to be made in four days. I entreat you to reflect, madame, for if you force the sale, you will lose a hundred thousand francs. If necessary, I will lose two hundred. I wish everything to be settled this evening. Do you accept? I do, your ladyship. I will not conceal from you that I shall make 
fifty thousand francs by the transaction so much the better for you in what way shall i have the money either in gold or in bills of the bank of lyon payable at monsieur colbert's i agree said the marquise eagerly return home and bring this sum in question in notes as soon as possible yes madame but for heaven's sake not a word monsieur fachot by the by i was forgetting the silver plate what is the value of that which i have fifty thousand francs madame that makes a million said the marquise to herself monsieur fachot you will take away with you both this gold and silver plate i can assign as a pretext that i wish it remodelled on patterns more in accordance with my own taste melt it down and return me its value in money at once it shall be done your ladyship you will be good enough to place the money in a chest and direct one of your clerks to accompany the chest and without my servant seeing him and order him to wait for me in a carriage in madame de Vacheux's carriage said the jeweller if you will allow it and i will call for it at your house certainly your ladyship i will direct some of my servants to convey the plate to your house the marquise rung let the small van be placed at monsieur fachot's disposal she said the jeweller bowed and left the house directing that the van should follow him closely saying aloud that the marquise was about to have her plate melted down in order to have other plate manufactured of a more modern style three hours afterwards she went to monsieur fachot's house and received from him eight hundred thousand francs in gold enclosed in a chest which one of the clerks could hardly carry towards madame fachot's carriage for madame fachot kept her carriage as the daughter of a president of accounts she had brought a marriage portion of thirty thousand crowns to her husband who was syndic of the goldsmiths these thirty thousand crowns had become very fruitful during twenty years the jeweller though a millionaire was a modest man he had purchased a substantial carriage built in sixteen forty eight ten years after the king's birth this carriage or rather house upon wheels excited the admiration of the whole quarter in which he resided it was covered with allegorical paintings and clouds scattered over with stars the marquise entered this somewhat extraordinary vehicle sitting opposite the clerk who endeavored to put his knees out of the way afraid even of touching the marquise's dress it was the clerk too who told the coachman who was very proud of having a marquise to drive to take the road to saint mande end of chapter one hundred and two recording by john van stan savannah georgia Chapter one hundred and three of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume Three, Part One, by Alexander Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dowry. Monsieur Fachu's horses were serviceable animals with thick-set knees and legs that had some difficulty in moving. Like the carriage, they belonged to the earlier part of the century. They were not as fleet as the English horses of Monsieur Fouquet, and consequently took two hours to get to Saint Mande their progress it might be said was majestic majesty however precludes hurry the marquise stopped the carriage at the door so well known to her although she had seen it only once under circumstances it will be remembered no less painful than those which brought her now to it again she drew a key from her pocket and inserted it in the lock pushed open the door which noiselessly yielded to her touch and directed the clerk to carry the chest upstairs to the first floor the weight of the chest was so great that the clerk was obliged to get the coachman to assist him with it they placed it in a small cabinet ante-room or boudoir rather adjoining the saloon where we once saw monsieur fouquet at the marquise's feet madame de belliere gave the coachman a louis smiled gracefully at the clerk and dismissed them both she closed the door after them and waited in the room alone and barricaded there was no servant to be seen about the rooms but everything was prepared as though some invisible genius had divined the wishes and desires of an expected guest the fire was laid candles in the candelabra refreshments upon the table books scattered about fresh cut flowers in the vases one might almost have imagined it an enchanted house the marquise lighted the candles inhaled the perfume of the flowers sat down and was soon plunged in profound thought her deep musings melancholy though they were were not untinged with a certain vague joy spread out before her was a treasure 
a million wrung from her fortune as a gleaner plucks the blue cornflower from her crown of flowers she conjured up the sweetest dreams her principal thought and one that took precedent of all others was to devise means of leaving this money for monsieur fouquet without his possibly learning from whom the gift had come this idea naturally enough was the first to present itself to her mind but although on reflection it appeared difficult to carry out she did not despair of success she would then ring to summon monsieur fouquet and make her escape happier than if instead of having given a million she had herself found one but being there and having seen the boudoir so coquettishly decorated that it might almost be said the least particle of dust had but the moment before been removed by the servants having observed the drawing-room so perfectly arranged that it might almost be said her presence there had driven away the fairies who were its occupants she asked herself if the glance or gaze of those whom she had displaced whether spirits fairies elves or human creatures had not already recognized her to secure success it was necessary that some steps should be seriously taken and it was necessary also that the superintendent should comprehend the serious position in which he was placed in order to yield compliance with the generous fancies of a woman all the fascinations of an eloquent friendship would be required to persuade him and should this be insufficient the maddening influence of a devoted passion which in its resolute determination to carry conviction would not be turned aside was not the superintendent indeed known for his delicacy and dignity of feeling would he allow himself to accept from any woman that of which she had stripped herself no he would resist and if any voice in the world could overcome his resistance it would be the voice of the woman he loved another doubt and that a cruel one suggested itself to madame de belliere with a sharp acute pain like a dagger thrust did he really love her would that volatile mind that inconstant heart be likely to be fixed for a moment even were it to gaze upon an angel was it not the same with fouquet notwithstanding his genius and his uprightness of conduct as with those conquerors on the field of battle who shed tears when they have gained a victory i must learn if it be so and must judge of that for myself said the marquise who can tell whether that heart so coveted is not common in its impulses and full of alloy who can tell if that mind when the touchstone is applied to it will not be found of a mean and vulgar character come come she said this is doubting and hesitating too much to the proof she looked at the timepiece it is now seven o'clock she said he must have arrived it is the hour for signing his papers with a feverish impatience she rose and walked with the mirror in which she smiled with a resolute smile of devotedness she touched the spring and drew out the handle of the bell then as if exhausted beforehand by the struggle she had just undergone she threw herself on her knees in utter abandonment before a large couch in which she buried her face in her trembling hands ten minutes afterwards she heard the spring of the door sound the door moved upon invisible hinges and fouquet appeared he looked pale and seemed bowed down by the weight of some bitter reflection he did not hurry but simply came at the summons the preoccupation of his mind must indeed have been very great that a man so devoted to pleasure for whom indeed pleasure meant everything should obey such a summons so listlessly the previous night in fact fertile and melancholy ideas had sharpened his features generally so noble in their indifference of expression and had traced dark lines of anxiety around his eyes handsome and noble he still was and the melancholy expression of his mouth a rare expression with men gave a new character to his features by which his youth seemed to be renewed dressed in black the lace in front of his chest much disarranged by his feverishly restless hand the looks of the superintendent full of dreamy reflection were fixed upon the threshold of the room which he had so frequently approached in search of expected happiness this gloomy gentleness of manner this smiling sadness of expression which had replaced his former excessive joy produced an indescribable effect upon madame de belliere who was regarding him at a distance a woman's eye can read the face of the man she loves its every feeling of pride its every expression of suffering it might almost be said that heaven has graciously granted to women on account of their very weakness more than it has accorded to other creatures they can conceal their own feelings from a man but from them no man can conceal his the marquise divined in a single glance the whole weight of the unhappiness of the superintendent she divined a night passed without sleep a day passed in deceptions from that moment she was firm in her own strength and she felt that she loved fouquet beyond everything else 
she arose and approached him saying you wrote to me this morning to say you were beginning to forget me and that i whom you had not seen lately had no doubt ceased to think of you i have come to undeceive you monsieur and the more completely so because there is one thing i can read in your eyes what is that madame said fouquet astonished that you have never loved me so much as at this moment in the same manner you can read in my present step toward you that i have not forgotten you oh madame said fouquet whose face was for a moment lighted up by a sudden gleam of joy you are indeed an angel and no man can suspect you all he can do is to humble himself before you and entreat forgiveness your forgiveness is granted then said the marquise fouquet was about to throw himself upon his knees no no she said sit here by my side ah that is an evil thought which has just crossed your mind how do you detect it madame by the smile that has just marred the expression of your countenance be candid and tell me what your thought was no secrets between friends tell me then madame why have you been so harsh these three or four months past harsh yes did you not forbid me to visit you alas said madame de belliere sighing because your visit to me was the cause of your being visited with a great misfortune because my house is watched because the same eyes that have seen you already might see you again because i think it less dangerous for you that i should come here than that you should come to my house and lastly because i know you to be already unhappy enough not to wish to increase your unhappiness further fouquet started for these words recalled all the anxieties connected with his office of superintendent he who for the last few minutes had indulged in all the wild aspirations of the lover i unhappy he said endeavouring to smile indeed marquise you will almost make me believe i am so judging from your own sadness are your beautiful eyes raised upon me merely in pity i was looking for another expression from them it is not i who am sad monsieur look in the mirror there it is yourself it is true i am somewhat pale marquise but it is from overwork the king yesterday required a supply of money from me yes four millions i am aware of it you know it exclaimed fouquet in a tone of surprise how can you have learnt it it was after the departure of the queen and in the presence of one person only that the king you perceive that i do know it is not that sufficient well go on monsieur the money the king has required you to supply you understand marquise that i have been obliged to procure it then to get it counted afterwards registered altogether a long affair since monsieur de mazarin's death financial affairs occasion some little fatigue and embarrassment my administration is somewhat overtaxed and this is the reason why i have not slept during the past night so that you have the amount inquired the marquise with some anxiety it would indeed be strange marquise replied fouquet cheerfully if a superintendent of finances were not to have a paltry four millions in his coffers yes yes i believe you either have or will have them what do you mean by saying i shall have them it is not very long since you were required to furnish two millions on the contrary it seems to me almost an age but do not let us talk of money matters any longer on the contrary we will continue to speak of them for that is my only reason for coming to see you i am at a loss to compass your meaning said the superintendent whose eyes began to express an anxious curiosity tell me monsieur is the office of superintendent a permanent position you surprise me marchioness for you speak as if you had some motive or interest in putting the question my reason is simple enough i am desirous of placing some money in your hands 
naturally i wish to know if you are certain of your post really marquise i am at a loss what to reply i cannot conceive your meaning seriously then dear monsieur fouquet funds which somewhat embarrass me i am tired of investing my money in land and am anxious to entrust it to some friend who will turn it to account surely it does not press said monsieur fouquet on the contrary it is very pressing very well we will talk of that by and by by and by will not do for my money is there returned the marquise pointing out the coffer to the superintendent and showing him as she opened it the bundles of notes and heaps of gold fouquet who had risen from his seat at the same moment as madame de belliere remained for a moment plunged in thought then suddenly starting back he turned pale and sank down in his chair concealing his face in his hands madame madame he murmured what opinion can you have of me when you make me such an offer of you returned the marquise tell me rather what you yourself think of the step i have taken you bring me this money for myself and you bring it because you know me to be embarrassed nay do not deny it for i am sure of it can i not read your heart if you know my heart then can you not see that it is my heart i offer you i have guessed rightly then exclaimed fouquet in truth madame i have never yet given you the right to insult me in this manner insult you she said turning pale what singular delicacy of feeling you tell me you love me in the name of that affection you wish me to sacrifice my reputation and my honour yet when i offer you money which is my own you refuse me madame you are at liberty to preserve what you term your reputation and your honour permit me to preserve mine leave me to my ruin leave me to sink beneath the weight of the hatreds which surround me beneath the faults i have committed beneath the load even of my remorse but for heaven's sake madame do not overwhelm me with this last infliction a short time since monsieur fouquet you were wanting in judgment now you are wanting in feeling fouquet pressed his clenched hand upon his breast heaving with emotion saying overwhelm me madame for i have nothing to reply i offered you my friendship monsieur fouquet yes madame and you limited yourself to that and what i am now doing is the act of a friend no doubt it is and you reject this mark of my friendship i do reject it monsieur fouquet look at me said the marquise with glistening eyes i now offer you my love oh madame exclaimed fouquet i have loved you for a long while past women like men have a false delicacy at times for a long time past i have loved you but would not confess it well then you have implored this love on your knees and i have refused you i was blind as you were a little while since but as it was my love that you sought it is now my love i offer you oh madame you overwhelm me beneath a load of happiness will you be happy then if i am yours entirely it will be the supremest happiness for me take me then if however for your sake i sacrifice a prejudice do you for mine sacrifice a scruple do not tempt me do not refuse me think seriously of what you are proposing fouquet but one word let it be no and i open this door and she pointed to the door which led into the streets and you will never see me again let that word be yes and i am entirely yours elsie elsie but this coffer contains my dowry 
it is your ruin exclaimed fouquet turning over the golden papers there must be a million here yes my jewels for which i care no longer if you do not love me and for which equally i care no longer if you love me as i love you this is too much exclaimed fouquet i yield i yield even were it only to consecrate so much devotion i accept the dowry and take the woman with it said the marquise throwing herself into his arms End of chapter 103, recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia. Chapter 104 of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume 3, Part 1, by Alexander Dumas. Translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Le Terrain de Dieu During the progress of these events, Buckingham and de Wardes traveled in excellent companionship, and made the journey from Paris to Calais in undisturbed harmony together. Buckingham had hurried his departure so that the greater part of his adieux were very hastily made. His visit to Monsieur and Madame, to the young Queen and to the Queen Dowager, had been paid collectively, a precaution on the part of the Queen Mother which saved him the distress of any private conversation with Monsieur, and also the danger of seeing Madame again. The carriages containing the luggage had already been sent on beforehand, and in the evening he set off in his travelling carriage with his attendants. De Wardes, irritated at finding himself dragged away in so abrupt a manner by this Englishman, had sought in his subtle mind for some means of escaping from his fetters, but no one having rendered him any assistance in this respect, he was absolutely obliged, therefore, to submit to the burden of his own evil thoughts and caustic spirit such of his friends in whom he had been able to confide had in their character of wits rallied him upon the duke's superiority others less brilliant but more sensible had reminded him of the king's orders prohibiting dueling others again and they the larger number who in virtue of charity or national vanity might have rendered him assistance did not care to run the risk of incurring disgrace and would at the best have informed the ministers of a departure which might end in a massacre on a small scale the result was that after having fully deliberated upon the matter de wardes packed up his luggage took a couple of horses and followed only by one servant made his way toward the barrier where buckingham's carriage was to await him the duke received his adversary as he would have done an intimate acquaintance made room beside him on the same seat with himself offered him refreshments and spread over his knees the sable cloak that had been thrown on the front seat they then conversed of the court without alluding to madame of monsieur without speaking of domestic affairs of the king without speaking of his brother's wife of the queen mother without alluding to her daughter-in-law of the king of england without alluding to his sister-in-law of the state of the affections of either of the travellers without pronouncing any name that might be dangerous in this way the journey which was performed by short stages was most agreeable and buckingham almost a frenchman from wit and education was delighted at having so admirably selected his travelling companion elegant repasts were served of which they partook but lightly trials of horses made in the beautiful meadows that skirted the road coursing indulged in for buckingham had his greyhounds with him and in such ways did they pass away the pleasant time the duke somewhat resembled the beautiful river Seine, which folds france a thousand times in its loving embrace before deciding upon joining its waters with the ocean in quitting france it was her recently adopted daughter he had brought to paris whom he chiefly regretted his every thought was a remembrance of her his every memory a regret therefore whenever now and then despite his command over himself he was lost in thought de wardes left him entirely to his musings this delicacy might have touched buckingham and changed his feelings toward de wardes if the latter while preserving silence hadn't shown a glance less full of malice and a smile less false instinctive dislikes however are relentless nothing appeases them a few ashes may sometimes apparently extinguish them but beneath those ashes the smothered embers rage more furiously having exhausted every means of amusement the route offered they arrived as we have said at calais toward the end of the sixth day the duke's attendants since the previous evening 
had travelled in advance and now chartered a boat for the purpose of joining the yacht which had been tacking about in sight or bore broadside on whenever it felt its white wings wearied within cannon shot of the jetty the boat was destined for the transport of the duke's equipages from the shore to the yacht the horses had been embarked having been hoisted from the boat upon the deck in baskets expressly made for the purpose and weighted in such a manner that their limbs even in the most violent fits of terror or impatience were always protected by the soft support which the sides afforded and their coats not even turned eight of these baskets placed side by side filled the ship's hold it is well known that in short voyages horses refuse to eat but remained trembling all the while while the best of food before them such as they would have greatly coveted on land by degrees the duke's entire equipage was transported on board the yacht he was then informed that everything was in readiness and that they only waited for him whenever he would be disposed to embark with the french gentleman for no one could possibly imagine that the french gentleman would have any other accounts to settle with his grace than those of friendship buckingham desired the captain to be told to hold himself in readiness but that as the sea was beautiful and as the day promised a splendid sunset he did not intend to go on board until nightfall and would avail himself of the evening to enjoy a walk on the strand he added also that finding himself in such excellent company he had not the least desire to hasten his embarkation as he said this he pointed out to those who surrounded him the magnificent spectacle which the sky presented of deepest azure in the horizon the amphitheatre of fleecy clouds ascending from the sun's disk to the zenith assuming the appearance of a range of snowy mountains whose summits were heaped one upon another the dome of clouds was tinged at its base with as it were the foam of rubies fading away into opal and pearly tints in proportion as the gaze was carried from base to summit the sea was gilded with the same reflection and upon the crest of every sparkling wave danced a point of light like a diamond by lamplight the mildness of the evening the sea breezes so dear to contemplative minds setting in from the east and blowing in delicious gusts then in the distance the black outline of the yacht with its rigging traced upon the empurpled background of the sky while dotting the horizon might be seen here and there vessels with their trimmed sails like the wings of a seagull about to plunge such a spectacle indeed well merited admiration a crowd of curious idlers followed the richly dressed attendants amongst whom they mistook the steward and the secretary for the master and his friend as for buckingham who was dressed very simply in a grey satin vest and doublet of violet-coloured velvet wearing his hat thrust over his eyes and without orders or embroidery he was taken no more notice of than de ward who was in black like an attorney the duke's attendants had received directions to have the boat in readiness at the jetty and to watch the embarkation of their master without approaching him until either he or his friend should summon them whatever may happen he had added laying a stress upon these words so that they might not be misunderstood having walked a few paces upon the strand buckingham said to de ward i think it is now time to take leave of each other the tide you perceive is rising ten minutes hence it will have soaked the sands where we are now walking in such a manner that we shall not be able to keep our footing i await your orders my lord but but you mean we are still upon soil which is part of the king's territory exactly well do you see yonder a kind of little island surrounded by a circle of water the pool is increasing every minute and the isle is gradually disappearing this island indeed belongs to heaven for it is situated between two seas and is not shown on the king's charts do you observe it yes but we can hardly reach it now without getting our feet wet yes but observe that it forms an eminence tolerably high and that the tide rises on every side leaving the top free we shall be admirably placed upon that little theatre what do you think of it i shall be perfectly happy wherever i may have the honour of crossing my sword with your lordships very well then i am distressed to be the cause of your wetting your feet monsieur de wardes but it is most essential you should be able to say to the king sire i did not fight upon your majesty's territory perhaps the distinction is somewhat subtle but since port royal your nation delights in subtleties of expression do not let us complain of this however for it makes your wit very brilliant 
and of a style peculiarly your own if you do not object we will hurry ourselves for the sea i perceive is rising fast and night is setting in my reason for not walking faster was that i did not wish to precede your grace are you still on dry land my lord yes at present i am look yonder my servants are afraid we shall be drowned and have converted the boat into a cruiser do you remark how curiously it dances upon the crests of the waves but as it makes me feel seasick would you permit me to turn my back toward them you will observe my lord that in turning your back to them you will have the sun full in your face oh, its rays are very feeble at this hour and it will soon disappear do not be uneasy on that score as you please my lord it was out of consideration for your lordship that i made the remark i am aware of that monsieur de wardes and i fully appreciate your kindness shall we take off our doublets as you please my lord do not hesitate to tell me monsieur de wardes if you do not feel comfortable upon the wet sand or if you think yourself a little too close to the french territory we could fight in england or even upon my yacht we are exceedingly well placed here my lord only i have the honor to remark that as the sea is rising fast we have hardly time buckingham made a sign of assent took off his doublet and threw it on the ground a proceeding which de Wardes imitated both their bodies which seemed like phantoms to those who were looking at them from the shore were thrown strongly into relief by a dark red violet colored shadow with which the sky became overspread upon my word your grace said de Wardes, we shall hardly have time to begin do you not perceive how our feet are sinking into the sand i have sunk up to my ankles said buckingham without reckoning that the water is even now breaking in upon us it has already reached me as soon as you please therefore your grace said de wardes who drew his sword a movement imitated by the duke monsieur de wardes said buckingham one final word i am about to fight you because i do not like you because you have wounded me in ridiculing a certain devotional regard i have entertained and one which i acknowledge that at this moment i still retain and for which i would very willingly die you are a bad and heartless man monsieur de wardes and i will do my very utmost to take your life for i feel assured that if you survive this engagement you will in the future work great mischief toward my friends that is all i have to remark monsieur de wardes continued buckingham as he saluted him and i my lord have only this to reply to you i have not disliked you hitherto but since you gave me such a character i hate you and will do all i possibly can to kill you and de wardes saluted buckingham their swords crossed at the same moment like two flashes of lightning on a dark night the swords seemed to seek each other guess their position and met both were practised swordsmen and the earlier passes were without any result the night was fast closing in and it was so dark that they attacked and defended themselves almost instinctively suddenly de wardes felt his sword arrested he had just touched buckingham's shoulder the duke's sword sunk as his arm was lowered you are wounded my lord said de wardes drawing back a step or two yes monsieur but only slightly yet you quitted your guard only from the first effect of the cold steel but i have recovered let us go on if you please and disengaging his sword with a sinister clashing of the blade the duke wounded the marquis in the breast a hit he said no cried de wardes not moving from his place i beg your pardon but observing that your shirt was stained said buckingham well said de wardes furiously it is now your turn and with a terrible lunge he pierced buckingham's arm the sword passing between the two bones buckingham feeling his right arm paralyzed stretched out his left seized his sword which was about falling from his nerveless grasp and before de wardes could resume his guard he thrust him through the breast de wardes tottered his knees gave way beneath him and leaving his sword still fixed in the duke's arm he fell into the water which was soon crimsoned with a more genuine reflection than that which it had borrowed from the clouds de wardes was not dead he felt the terrible danger that menaced him for the sea rose fast the duke too perceived the danger with an effort and an exclamation of pain he tore out the blade which remained in his arm and turning toward de wardes said 
are you dead marquis no replied de wardes in a voice choked by the blood which rushed from his lungs to his throat but very near it well what is to be done can you walk said buckingham supporting him on his knee impossible he replied then falling down again said call to your people or i shall be drowned halloa boat there quick quick the boat flew over the waves but the sea rose faster than the boat could approach buckingham saw that de wardes was on the point of being again covered by a wave he passed his left arm safe and unwounded round his body and raised him up the wave ascended to his waist but did not move him the duke immediately began to carry his late antagonist toward the shore he had hardly gone ten paces when a second wave rushing onwards higher more furious and menacing than the former struck him at the height of his chest threw him over and buried him beneath the water at the reflux however the duke and de wardes were discovered lying on the strand de wardes had fainted at this moment four of the duke's sailors who comprehended the danger threw themselves into the sea and in a moment were close beside him their terror was extreme when they observed how their master became covered with blood in proportion as the water with which it was impregnated flowed toward his knees and feet they wished to carry him no no exclaimed the duke take the marquis on shore first death to the frenchman cried the english sullenly wretched knaves exclaimed the duke drawing himself up with a haughty gesture which sprinkled them with blood obey directly monsieur de wardes on shore monsieur de wardes safety is to be looked to first or i will have you all hanged the boat had by this time reached them the secretary and steward leaped into the sea and approached the marquis who no longer showed any sign of life i commit him to your care as you value your lives said the duke take monsieur de wardes on shore they took him in their arms and carried him to the dry sand where the tide never rose so high a few idlers and five or six fishermen had gathered on the shore attracted by the strange spectacle of two men fighting with the water up to their knees the fishermen observing a group of men approaching carrying a wounded man entered the sea until the water was up to their waists the english transferred the wounded man to them at the very moment the latter began to open his eyes again the salt water and the fine sand had gotten to his wounds and caused him the acutest pain the duke's secretary drew out a purse filled with gold from his pocket and handed it to one among those present who appeared of most importance saying from my master the grace the duke of buckingham in order that every possible care may be taken of the marquis de wardes then followed by those who had accompanied him he returned to the boat which buckingham had been enabled to reach with the greatest difficulty but only after he had seen de wardes out of danger by this time it was high tide embroidered coats and silk sashes were lost many hats too had been carried away by the waves the flow of the tide had borne the duke's and de wardes close to the shore and de wardes was wrapped in the duke's doublet under the belief that it was his own when the fishermen carried him in their arms toward the town end of chapter one hundred and four recording by john van stan savannah georgia end of the d'artagnan romances volume three part one ten years later by alexander dumas translated by william robson thank you for listening